This episode of The Interchange is made possible by APSA and Simu. Hello and welcome to The Interchange. I am your host, Busim Kumbuzi. Now, every year on the 18th of July, the whole world celebrates the 67 years that Nelson Mandela spent in prison during apartheid by giving up their time and resources to take action against poverty. Global footwear giant Bata closed their doors last year to donate thousands of shoes. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, pledged $5 billion to Africa. And these donations are just drops in the ocean compared to the rest of the aid committed to Africa every single year to alleviate poverty. But what if this aid is actually making things worse? Our motion for today's episode is this house believes that African states should reject foreign aid. And joining me in studio is Dan Peter, Masters in Law Student and Debater, William Shorkey, law student, writer and debater, Anam Azar, medicine student, debater and feminist, Maxine Kumalo, astrophysics student and debater, and our expert for today's topic, Talifang Mwiletsi, who is a PhD economic student at Wits University, a researcher who has worked at the IMF and currently works at World Bank, CEO and founder of his own fashion brand, Mibala. Talifang, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, is foreign aid, in your opinion, the problem or the solution? Um, I think what we must first start doing is um, defining the different types of foreign aids that we can have because mm. um, they're all different kind, different types of financing mm. um, that can have different types of, of outcomes. Mm. So humanitarian foreign aid, I think everybody will agree that... Um, that does a lot of good, mm. particularly in instances of crisis and mm. all of that. Mm. And then you can have foreign aid where it's from an individual to an NPO, mm. an individual to an NGO, an individual to an NGO, mm. to another individual. Mm. For instance, somebody funding you to go study your mm. PhD, wherever. Yeah. So we can agree that all of those are good. Mm. So I think mm. what we're trying to, to, to understand today and really unpack is mm. Um, government to government foreign aid, which is commonly termed as uh, developmental aid. Mm. So, a brief history of 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 how this started. Um, so, this is the 1950s and 60s, mm. and Africa is transitioning into um, the post-colonial era. Yeah. And one of the questions that we have is, um, given given the fact that um, there's such high poverty in, in Africa mm. and scarcity of resources, how can we finance the development that we need mm. in order to have, um, uh, to build up the economies mm. that we Functional need? Functional markets. Functional mm. markets, um, mm. um, services and products, mm. uh, 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 delivery of public services, yeah. all of that. In, in in the Western world, it's all good because um, you have savings and that leads to investments and mm. that leads to economic activity. Mm. But where do the savings come from? There's heterogeneity in the model because the savings come from um, economic activity mm. and meaningful ownership of economic activity. Mm. In Africa, you didn't have that economic activity. Mm. And so the proponents of foreign developmental aid was saying that this is how you stimulate it mm, you know mm, mm, um mm. so it's 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 one of the more interesting questions in economic literature mm. because 
the 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 empirical consensus hasn't been particularly clear. Mm. And um that's also because the theoretical uh, analysis is also not particularly clear because there's mm. good cases for and against. Mm. Um starting with cases for the argument is that every every developed um all parts of the world that are developed have had some free lunch mm. at some stage in their history. Mm. So with starting with Europe and America, mm. you had slavery and colonization yeah. and that was their free lunch. Mm. And that enabled them to essentially Literally, build up yeah. wealth that yeah. could later translate into economic development. Mm. And when you look at China, the argument is that um their free lunch came from violating a uh, Intellectual property, oh. human rights, mm. WTO trading rules, mm. and that allowed them to uh, build up economic activity, mm. savings, and, and all of that, and become mm. a proper developed state. Mm. And so, where's Africa's free mm. lunch? And mm. so proponents for de- developmental aid wow. argue that, you know, this is Africa's free lunch, yeah. which you definitely need in order to develop. And then the arguments against... um it's it's a it's a it's a bit of a longer list, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully so, we'll get uh, all of those from our opposition. Yeah. So, um, f- firstly, uh, uh, a more sort of um, the oldest one was this issue of the Dutch disease, which essentially, to to sum it up, is that when you when you have foreign aid. Um, and then there's foreign currency flow into your country. Yeah. It can lead to, uh, currency appreciation. Uh-huh. And then currency appreciation, domestic currency appreciation can in turn make some tradable sectors in your economy, um, uncompetitive uh-huh. because you lose price competitiveness. Uh-huh. And there has been an extensive, um, uh, uh, literature that, mm. that has proven this, that foreign aid leads to currency appreciation mm. and ultimately undermines price competitiveness. Mm. And then the the most commonly cited one is this issue of corruption. Yeah, um, among the leaders, yeah. Yeah, yeah, among the leaders and, and, and rent-seeking and the mm. fact that what, what ends up happening is that it makes... Um, it makes the incentives for capturing the state even more stronger. Yeah. Because this is like now there's an influx of free money. Free money. Yeah. You know, it's it's a stronger incentive than mineral resources mm. even. Because at least with gold you must dig it up. But this but is yeah, like literally like, like free money. Here's some it's money. There. Here's a briefcase. You know? Um and then um another important and commonly cited argument is that it, it kills the accountability mechanisms that you need in a democracy. Because mm. in a democracy, you need a government that is providing public services to citizens that are paying tax. Mm. And so if you outsource um, the, that the provision services, yeah. of, of, of providing public services, it undermines that fundamental relationship that you Between need for states, taxpayers yeah. to hold you accountable. Mm. Mm. Okay. I, I mean, you've said a mouthful and um, I'm interested to hear what the debaters are going to say. So let's get into it. But before then, here are the rules. We are using the British parliamentary format, which means that we have four speakers, two on each side. The first two are proposition and the last two are opposition. The speaking order will be that prop one will speak first and op two will speak last. Each speaker has four minutes 
and in between, points of information can be asked. I'm going to hand over to Prop 1, Dan Peter. Hi, so thank you for having me. Uh, I think this is a very important debate, especially given the the levels of aid which we're seeing in today's society. Um, and I think before we get into this debate, we have to just exclude a few things. So the first thing that we're excluding is humanitarian aid. Uh, this is quite intuitive. This is almost universally excluded in aid discussions. Um, and the reasons are also quite intuitive. The main reason why, universal, why human, humanitarian aid is pretty much universally excluded in these discussions is because it's not tied to the developmental state or the geographical location of states receiving that humanitarian aid. It could be received by any nation. In fact, the United States received aid, international humanitarian aid for Hurricane Sandy. Um, and we don't think that that aid is being given to African states because they're African or developing. It would be given to any state requiring humanitarian assistance. The second thing it excludes is non-aid cooperation. And the main things we're talking about here are peacekeeping and trade privileges. And those are going to be very important when we speak about the alternatives for the developing world enacting what is their responsibility towards African nations. But for the main part, uh, point of One my minute. argument, I'm going to be speaking about the failure of developmental aid uh, to work in assisting the, the development of African countries. The main thing we need to talk about here is the cycle of dependency which it creates. Now, we think that this is less about the inherent failure of African states and more about the nature of developmental aid. We think it's specifically designed to create dependence. Firstly, it doesn't build capacity. It's generally earmarked for certain projects, for certain outcomes. It's not earmarked for the creation of broader capacity for the African nations to to create their own growth and their own wealth and generate their own income. Um, And secondly, we think that... um, I'm trying to read what I've just written here. Uh, <laughs> we, we think that when it is earmarked for those specific outcomes, it often doesn't get to those outcomes. That's often due to things like insurgency, to terrorism, often to uh, large-scale corruption outside of government departments that are often asking for that aid in the first place. And so we think that even when it is earmarked for those specific outcomes, it often, often doesn't when? get there. Uh, no. So we think that it often fails to reach those outcomes. Um, secondly, we think that it reduces the political incentive to engage in other forms of cooperation. Firstly, that's because it uses Bushing. the capacity of those developed nations to offer that aid. But secondly, we think it just reduces the political will of those nations to offer developmental aid. In fact, it's often used, moreover, as a reason to show that African nations are inept, right? We think that often the the developed nations that are offering that aid are very aware that that aid isn't going to work. No one's ignorant of the fact that the aid doesn't actually help these nations develop. And we think when it doesn't help those nations work, it's used as a sign from developed nations that there's no point in cooperating with African nations to build their capacity further because it's never going to work in the first place. Um, the next thing we think we, is that it's ostensibly used for human rights influences. But firstly, we think that there's very little right for those nations to be offering developmental aid or withdrawing developmental aid on condition of human rights compliance. And we yeah, think yeah. that opposition needs to engage with this reality that this is often the case, because often those human rights laws, uh, the, the, those discriminatory laws that people are trying to repeal in the developed world are legacies of colonial laws. Um, but secondly, we think that that's actually just another form of neocolonialism, which we'll, we'll be talking about. Um, lastly, we think that that far, uh, foreign direct investment crowds out local investment because we think that foreign direct investment, either through government expenditure or even through its own expenditure, no, this is economically true, raises interest rates. And we think that when you raise interest rates, it increases the cost of borrowing for local grassroots investment. We need real economic engagement from this from opposition and not just for shame. Um, And so we think lastly, what this allows us to do is demand alternatives because we think that the developed world does have a responsibility towards the developing world. And we think we can recognize a role which trade privileges, such as reductions in most favored nation and national treatment exemptions, 
nations um, play in allowing these countries to cooperate with developed nations on an equal playing field. We think that thing uh, th- that is a particularly important form of trade privilege, and we need engagement from this from side opposition. And so, for all of those reasons, we think that it's not only uh, sufficient for opposition to say there's an upper uh, uh, an obligation from the developed world, but we need real life engagement from opposition on the means through which the developed nation should engage with that responsibility. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you, Dan. I'm going to now hand over to our op one speaker, Anam. So I think that the main problem here is that we confuse the limitations of developmental aid with being the harms of developmental aid. Because granted, and we can see that developmental aid doesn't necessarily in every case um, lead to a country becoming more prosperous. But we think that that doesn't mean that there aren't marginal gains to be achieved through this developmental aid. We also think that the scope that you send this debate is incredibly narrow because Mm -hmm. we think that there's a lot of instances, specifically if we look at the way that China has given developmental aid to a lot of countries, in that actually resulting in better infrastructure in those countries and that actually resulting in some kind of economic growth in those countries. But lastly, we think that using ideas like, well, when that fails, it means that like these Western nations can then say that African, um, African states basically fail. We think like that kind of analysis is very counterintuitive because that because the rejection of that aid in and of itself means that these countries are they going to be less ca- well less likely to have that marginal benefit, which then entrenches One minute those narratives. Up. We think that foreign direct investment is something that's very important, and we think and, um, that these kinds of things are essentially what leads to um, like that marginal gain that we're talking about. So, if we look at the kind of interest that these kinds of countries have in African states, we think that there's a lot of cases where the interests of these countries who are giving developmental aid coincides with the interests of African states, right? Again, I look at things like China, where China does have an interest and does have, and it is self-interested in saying that it wants to form allyship with Africa or it wants to give this developmental aid on the basis that they are like political allies or on the basis that they can improve their markets. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there aren't marginal benefits to be achieved within these African states from this aid. We think there are no. numerous examples of instances in which China has built a lot of bridges and where China has built a lot of roads that, sure, we can say this doesn't answer all the problems. So we think, again, it is a marginal benefit. We think that in an African context specifically, it's unrealistic for us to reject developmental aid at a point where we are even under your own characterization, to an extent dependent on it, right? And we think that the kind of dependency doesn't come from the fact that that aid is just given, but it comes from the fact that there is scarcity as a result of colonialism. And that can only really be resolved through things like developmental aid. But why do we think on a principal level it's better to have developmental aid? Because we're not saying it's exclusive to better alternatives, right? We're not saying it's exclusive to things like foregoing debt altogether. It's not exclusive to things like providing more robust mechanisms for multinational corporations to, um, for example, have better uh, better regulations in African states. And why so we it's think exclusive? All those things are good, but we think... That doesn't mean that we can't have the developmental aid. If anything, we think the developmental aid is even more important because it means that you have a kind of allyship that you create with those countries, such as a global hegemony like China. But we also think that they, One this doesn't left. mean that we can't scrutinize aid, right? So it doesn't mean that we can't have some kind of agreement about the kind of regulations yeah, yeah. that come with aid. But we think rejecting that aid altogether is going to be a disservice to African states. We think, lastly, that it's very important to mention that this developmental aid that we're given isn't just something that, like, there isn't 
this is an, the closest thing we're actually going to get to reparations, right? Because we think that essentially this is a form of us gaining resources from global hegemonies or gaining resources from a lot of the Western world. And we think that there isn't currently any mechanism to force like those countries to give us reparations, specifically in the absence of developmental aid. So essentially, we don't say that this is an exclusive policy. We definitely think that this isn't a policy that solves all of the problems, but we think there are marginal gains that can be achieved. And we think we lose those Four marginal gains when up. we just reject this aid altogether. I'm up. Thank you, Anam. I'm going to hand over to William Shorkey, Prop 2, to conclude his side's debate. Any aid that is given as a front for some ulterior motive or interest isn't aid at all. Aid that is advanced for a political or economic interest for the benefactor will always see the beneficiary being the useful idiot. Panel, it's telling that in the way Anam characterizes her arguments, she talks about how aid is a point of mutual interest for the country that is both giving the aid and the country that is receiving the aid. We say that precisely because aid is driven by interest makes it a tool that it can never act actually help the countries it is supposedly supposed to benefit. So what am I going to talk about in my speech? We think that what Anam spoke about nicely dovetails with the arguments that I want to speak to, which is about how a neocolonialist dependency assumes between the relationship or between the countries that are receiving and the countries that are giving the aid. So I'm going to jump straight into that. What Anam says in her speech is she pays a lot of credence to China rising as this new global counter hegemony and says that it's crucial to to foster good relationships with countries such as China through aid partnerships because that means that we can stand to benefit economically and diplomatically. But we think that is dangerous, right? Because China, as she correctly characterizes, is giving this aid purely to advance its economic interests. She says yeah, yeah. there's a marginal gain to be, you know, extracted there. But why is that not the case? It's not the case for everything that Dan said, which I have to remind everyone was just not responded to. The fact that you undermine the capacity of these countries to be thriving, self-sufficient nations. The fact that this aid is given precisely to establish exclusive dependence on the country that is giving the aid. That you yeah, undermine yeah. the ability, for example, for domestic institutions Please. to be built, for that infrastructure to be built. Now you become reliant on aid workers from China. Now you become reliant on accountability mechanisms from China, which oftentimes are non-existent, which leads to the kind of looting and mismanagement that Dan talks about. So there's no reason that describes why this is something that is beneficial in the long run. It might be beneficial in the short term. We're not going to deny that. The point is that a cycle of dependence is one that forever keeps a country that is receiving aid in a relationship of subordination that can't be accepted. Yes. But we're already somewhat dependent on that developmental aid because we don't have that kind of... um, Independence of our well, own yeah, resources You're just proving the point Literally what Anam says is We're already dependent on that developmental aid We can't do anything else so We might as well keep being dependent Why is that simply not the case? Let's talk about the alternatives Which Dan said I would speak to The alternatives is allowing these countries To implement programs of their own And stand on their own two feet Which isn't to say that they aren't going to stumble along the way But it's important for that to happen Why is that the case? We think that a lot of countries Especially in the global south Were at points in which they wanted to implement Far-reaching 
engineering and widespread structural reforms that would benefit the most or the least advantaged in societies, right? We're talking about radical economic policies, which are, which emphasize principles of redistribution, for example. The problem One is when late. aid givers knock on their door, they have to do things such as open their markets to trade liberalization. They have to do things such as decrease the amount of capital controls, which would protect the amount of money leaving the country. The problem is that they allow themselves to be open for the consumption of these global actors, which leave them battered and bruised. We think that the marginal gains... It stands in the way of real, long-term, far-reaching programs, which these countries have oftentimes been interested in implementing, but they've been told by their aid backers that they can't do so because we don't accept redistribution as a principle. We don't accept policies which are aimed at advantaging the least advantaged of society, and instead we want to promote trade, we want to promote stability, and that is the reason why it comes at great cost. Thank you so much, Will. I'm going to hand over to uh, up to speaker Maxine, who's going to conclude her side and the overall debate. A few things. Firstly, governments have to fulfill their mandate. What you do when you deny all aid is you cripple their capacity. They can tell you about all these alternative means and alternative measures, but the reality is, is these moves are suicide missions, right? Even if the cause is beneficial, which they try to prove, as African nations, that dependency already exists. So you have to understand that by completely removing it creates a complete vacuum of ability to fulfill their mandate. If these governments are as corrupt or as inept as they describe them to, it means that citizens get harmed by these sort of changes. And the same interest rates that they say make it difficult for local investors are the same things that are going to cripple the individuals who need to actually buy food, get resources, and actually be benefited from their society. There are a few things we have to unpack. The first thing is that they talk about this dependence as something that is crippling. That means that Africa can't make its own decisions. They can't um, be involved in more radical policies. The first thing we have to understand is you um, is that trade is that aid is only One part up. of the many Maxine. different ways that um, hegemons enact their power on these countries. Right. One of the great examples is the chicken scandal that happened in South Africa, and where tra- things like trade and tariff uh, tariffs and ways to enage- in other economic measures mean that hegemons will exactly, continue Maxine. to push their power even if they don't have aid. So their harms exist on with, with or without aid. The, the difference, though, here is that you, they become much more vulnerable. If you have no ability to create manda- uh, to fulfill your mandate to your people, if you have no ability to be a, a state that is functioning, you're ten times more vulnerable to tariff issues and trade wars. You can't fight by using an ally like China to leverage more money to stabilize yourself in economic trauma. So they're creating vulnerable states who are just as um, dependent in the past. But also, dependency isn't bad in a world that's more and more globalized in which we actually have to engage with each other, some sort of diplomacy that, yes, might some make us submissive at a point could be really beneficial because China, it could be a huge game player. If there's someone who's in our court, we're actually able to be ahead in, in ways that are still very Maxine. beneficial to our people. Before I move on to my next issue, Dan. I told you an unresponded point in my first speech about how uh, developmental aid excludes the abilities and undermines the abilities for developing countries to demand exceptions to those tariffs yeah. That you yeah, spoke about yeah, in yeah. free trade agreements and exceptions to the most favored nation and national treatment exceptions. What what is your response to that? So the reality is that if you're Botswana and you're still tr- and you don't now no, not no longer accepting aid, do you really think you can still make those demands and still successfully get those statements? Yes. The reality is that 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 there is no, you'd still have no power in that conversation, right? That at least prov- providing stability to your own people and your own economy with by accepting some forms of aid. And we've already said in today's debate we. 
accept being critical about aid is extremely important. The danger is saying, no, never, my, the, uh, being on our own is the most important. That's where you create a vulnerability in our society. So no, I do, it's not aid's fault that this vulnerability continues. And if anything, especially countries that don't have clout are going to continue to be undermined without their aid, but they can't help their own people. But lastly, and what's important to understand is that um, aid is something that's uh, as African is used as reparation. We've already spoken about it in Anam's speech, but the idea is we'll never be able to negotiate real money back from the West ever. They're never going to say they did the wrong things. The real, especially more um, right wing, they get the more they deny the harms they've created. This is the only way we're going to actually get some benefits from the harms they've put to us, and this is the only way we can actually use their own system to benefit our own people to do better. Aid might not be the best remedy, but denying all of it at this moment is dangerous for Africa to develop and to continue to catch up to the rest of the world, especially with China as such a great ally. Thank you. Thank you so much to both sides. I think that was a wonderful debate. Um, looking at many issues that are incredibly important. And I think one that requires outright clarity, I think, from proposition side is um, if they think that, you know, aid is is inherent and instrumental for exploitation. So perhaps... You know, if you had more time in your debate, what would you have said directly to speak to that? Which one of us would you like to answer that? Well, any of you, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, one, I mean, one comment, uh, uh, I'd like to, to make on that point is that it's, it's, it's hard to obviously trace the exploitation relationship and to talk about it in, uh, neatly causal way. But I guess the, the, the one thing to say on that is that the, problem with aid is that the very same countries who are behaving in this generous and benevolent way are the ones who maintain the global power structure mm. along the lines of you know relentless capital accumulation of international finance capital and money being siphoned away from countries into offshore accounts all of that stuff that became known to the world after the 2008 crisis and i suppose the exploitative relationship comes in how in dispensing aid to these countries with the left hand, mm. the global power structure, which continues to exploit them because that's the actual exploitative relationship is maintained with the right hand. Mm. So that sort of relationship yeah. becomes obscured. And I think it prevents, as Dan was saying in his presentation from countries being able to to meaningfully challenge it. I think also is that aside from the fact that's very important that there's an underlying exploitative relationship, I think aid itself is exploitative. And I think okay. to understand that it's important just to understand that, that nations don't actually act altruistically, right? They, yeah, they, they, don't, yeah. they don't act out of the goodness of their own hearts, right? Um, we have to understand that, that all relationships are going to involve some form of benefit to be exploited or, or to be extracted. I think the important part in negating or mitigating exploitative relationships is making sure that when one nation gains something, the other nation gains something too. And so what we would, we were trying to argue is that trade privileges okay. are far more beneficial at making sure that both parties gain from something because they take place at the point of trade where capacity yeah. has already been built to be, to be trading between nations and that exceptions from the most favored nation and national treatment principles allow for you to engage in an equal. But I think to gain to that point, equal uh -huh. yeah. But I mean, to that point, I think what Anam and, and Maxine tried to um, arguing this debate is that not all um, aid relationships between state and uh, philanthropic organization or philanthropic nation are representative of this white savior victimized African um, relationship. And they try to speak to examples where they show us that 
um, it could very well be a takeaway for both organizations. I'm just thinking about think tanks in Ghana that um, have been using aid to, you know, build up their muscle to come up with policy and to resource specific um, trade agreements and, 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 and trade in general um, within Ghana. And uh, same thing in, in, in Rwanda, which is a country that is uh, notorious for, for, for being deeply suspicious of, of foreign interference. And I just want to give them a chance here to, um, to speak to the fact that, you know, a relationship could exist that has takeaways for both stakeholders that isn't necessarily um, you know, representative of this white savior, victimized African that that you sort of speak of. I don't know, um, Anna Maxine, you've been agreeing. So um, could you add on to that? Uh, yeah. So again, I think like a really good example would probably be like China uh-huh. uh, to say that, you know, China's interest in Africa was largely even when they were speaking when like the UN was voting on Taiwan and they then realized that there's a lot of African countries that the rest of the UN ignores that have very important votes and they like then created like this allyship with African countries and also like China's interest in Africa in being that Africa is a really big market for them. Mm -hmm. So in those instances, I think that the problem becomes when we talk about like a proportion to which these states are benefiting, because I think it's kind of unrealistic to assume that both states would benefit to the same proportion. So like, Mm. even if we concede that sure, China has like benefited like more proportionally to what Africa has benefited from these agreements, it doesn't negate the fact that Africa has benefited from this developmental aid. And I think like, it's just, if we're talking about like China will always have more privilege in like the global economy, right? Because they are a global hegemony. Like even like Western countries will always have more of a say in like the world, the world trade organization. But again, to reject aid means that you're taking away your ability to benefit from the mm. things that are beneficial in hopes that like you will have these policies that are going to benefit even though there isn't any real like understanding so you of wouldn't what say that are. you know by rejecting aid uh, or by accepting it we're copying out of the unique opportunity to reject an inherently exploitative relationship that could be restructured completely in the new world well i think that first of all the restructuring well i think that essentially we're not taking into account the urgency of Africa yeah. to use that aid. So it also becomes like, to what extent? Because I think in times of scarcity, you do have to make difficult way ups. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of countries have made that way up of maybe foregoing like some political autonomy in the interest of more like economic benefit. Like if we look at even countries like Rwanda, a lot of like the like, those citizens have foregone a lot of their political autonomy in the interest of like having a more stable economy. So I think it just depends on what that way up looks like. But I think it would be very premature and very impulsive to reject aid on the promise of some kind of restructuring when that hasn't really taken place. And even if we talk about restructuring, I think there's a lot of consensus to say that the best thing for Africa would be reparations because Mm -hmm. this kind of ability for us to like just have change, it's just, it's very impractical again when 
we are struggling to maintain our government mandates of providing goods and services to people on a daily basis. But on, on reparations specifically, and I will, I, I see you're burning to respond to that directly. I think in your response, just build in, um, um, some analysis on, on the issue of interest because you spoke about it quite extensively in your speech and that the, the, the reason why aid is devastating is because of, you know, the motivations of many funders. But if we're looking at how much is donated against national budgets, for example, uh, a, a, a Gates Foundation or Ford Foundation donating at most 14 million US dollars to SA versus a budget of over a hundred billion US dollars, can we truly give weight to the interest of the funders? How hegemonic is it um, if if all it's doing is playing an auxiliary role in in in, in helping yeah. just a, a few NGOs well, um, I mean, the, achieve the, what, their goals? Yeah, the point I want uh, the point I'm about to make is that I think that in in a lot of countries it stops playing an auxiliary role and starts to play a primary role. Right? Yeah. I think that's the true danger. Is that what a lot of aid ends up doing is it displaces the ordinary state, state mm-hmm. right? The state that is supposed to be the provider of services and that is supposed to be building an infrastructure that is capable of filling out its duties and a sort of parallel state develops. And, you know, a lot of people will come with the common retort of saying, well, a lot of these states are corrupt and the institutions are broken to begin with. So why throw money or resources at something that doesn't work anyway? Well, the danger is that a lot of these countries have bright, talented people yeah. who would much rather work for Oxfam or would much rather work for the Ford Foundation. And that creates that cycle where as much as Anam was saying, in the short term, we have a massive gain, but it comes at the cost Mm. of truly fulfilling and realizing the goal of that aid in the first place, which is to assist. And we can say, well, Countries can choose to prioritize that, but we've been talking, having this conversation for like the last 70 years and Mm. countries are still receiving aid and countries Mm. are still at square one. So it doesn't seem to be helping in the way that we hoped it would. I mean, if states aren't organizing in ways that aid could benefit um, or or in ways that, um, you know, trade or any kind of meaningful economic transformation could happen, isn't it irresponsible to then say, you know, take the aid away, regardless of the fact that millions on the ground mm. are poor. And and I'm agreeing. So I guess this was the point that was going to be covered by you. Mm. Dan, do you want to respond to yeah, that? Yeah. So look, I, I think the first thing is that I think it would be disingenuous to say that we weren't also operating in the context of a web, right? Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's it's not sufficient for the other side to say that sometimes you can generate positive externalities or even or even positive benefits from from aid. We think that when you make an economic choice or a foreign policy choice, you have to say that in the broad majority majority of the time. Um, if you generate either sufficient negative externalities or if you have an inherently harmful relationship, both of which we think is still true in this debate, right, not really contested by the opposition, um, then we wouldn't take that foreign policy decision. Um, but I think that it's important to understand here that we're not saying that if you take away that aid, you leave nothing in its place. We're saying that when you take away that aid, you allow for greater political pa- capacities to demand things like trade privileges, mm-hmm. peacekeeping, governance assistance, things like that, none of which have really been responded to by the opposition. And we think that trade privileges are something that, that are really not actually being engaged with here and the, and the, the trade privileges such as exceptions from the most favored nation treatment already exists in the World Trade Organization corpus and is being used by many nations in place of aid. Mm. And so it's not enough for the opposition to say that you don't actually have the capacity to demand that because some nations are demanding that in place of aid and are receiving those exceptions from the most favored nation corpus. Mm. That's something that the opposition has to engage Maxine, with. I'm going to give you one minute to quickly conclude and respond okay. to that point directly. So I think, firstly, 
it, it's a, a lie to say that lots of these conditions are just like patronizing. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's really important to have international intervention in things. Things like, for example, Venezuela or in Sudan. Those people who are on the ground want intervention. They want someone to say, I will not give you aid unless you act in the people's favor. So not, it's, it's often in the favor of people that this can be acted. But I think to answer specifically, I think often you just need the money, right? The reality is that if we're talking about war-torn countries or places that really do need support in terms of peacekeepers and that sort of uh, support, they can already get that. I think that falls into your humanitarian aid sector or all sorts of trade issues. Some countries, especially if trade isn't the issue, just need money to fund the resources and the services they provide to their people. And you mm-hmm. can't supplement it with other services. And that, and I think that speaks specifically to reparation because it gives the choice back to the states, to the people to say, this is what I want the money to be spent on and not, um, and this is what we voted our government in for and not necessarily for more militarization of African countries or for more um, like war, to- just focusing on war torn African countries and not looking at the poverty that also just needs to be alleviated by basic like welfare changes or anything that you can use actual money for. Mm. So, yeah, I think that it's not just uh, the other services just cannot be used sometimes if you don't have the cash influx to f- fulfill those basic resources. Okay, Talifang, you've heard the debate, you've heard the arguments on both sides, you've heard the closing views. I'm going to give you the last word. Um, interesting. So an issue that has been coming up here is, is this issue of long-termism, you know. Um, so there seems to be some consensus that probably in the long term it doesn't benefit us. Mm. But maybe in the short term, given scarcity of resources, mm. it, it, it might be a good way to go. Um, because we get these, uh, these, these marginal benefits that are being mentioned. Mm. So the question is, do those marginal benefits that we get in the short term enough, um, enough benefits given the, uh, 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 um, the disadvantages of foreign aid? Mm. So this issue of, of free lunches and reparations, uh-huh. the challenge with framing developmental aid as reparations is that there's the issue of disfranchising mm. because if it's reparations and if they call it reparations and they give us the money as reparations it doesn't have those negative connotations mm. that this disenfranchising um, element mm. that our foreign developmental mm. aid has and um i think ultimately given given the long term um the long term harms of foreign aid were better off trying to uh find alternative ways yeah. of of financing that which we need to do mm. and this is not to say that the global community doesn't have a role to play you sure. know um we've had a trillion us dollars of inflow of, of foreign aid since the 1960s mm. but at an aggregate level, poverty rates in, in, in Africa have not, in, have not decreased. At all. In fact, they've increased. In, in fact, they've increased. Mm. You know, so if we say that, um, foreign aid and one trillion US dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money. And if we say that foreign aid is going to help you become a developmental state and we've had 70 years of, of it flowing and mm. poverty rates are still increasing, then that means that there's something wrong. You know, mm. with what we're doing fundamentally. fundamentally, but there is a role that the global economy can can play 
and trying to stimulate um, economic activity. And the way to do that is to really get to get to the root of the mm. problem, get to um, the root of unlocking and stimulating economic activity. Mm. So instead of taking a billion US dollars and, and, and donating them to Zambia or Rwanda or what have you, what you're better off doing, for instance, if you're America, is taking that money and incentivizing American companies to mm. buy from uh, um, uh, mm. uh, African manufacturers. So, for instance, in East Africa, they mine many of the components that you need to make um, to make smartphones, mm. but they export them as raw materials because mm. they are nowhere near being competitive enough, having the right skills, having the mm. right labor costs to produce those components that go into mm. phones. So, what would be better instead of giving um, uh, the DRC a billion US dollars of foreign aid, mm. of foreign foreign aid. Mm. What's better is to take that and plug it into Apple as mm. an incentive and say that listen, we want you to source value-added mm. cell phone components from DRC, mm. and that is a longer-term solution, mm. and that goes far far richer mm. than um any foreign aid that yeah. you would have given for the equivalent money. Mm. And um if 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 you look at um um and, and this would particularly work given Africa's uh wealth and mineral resources mm-hmm. because the question has always been how can we add value to our mineral mm. resources so that they ultimately create wealth for us. Mm. So Beyond the cell phones, you can incentivize um, companies to source jewelry from mm. Africa so that we don't just mm. export the gold in and raw form and the diamond is raw mm. form, but we make it and we export it as a finished mm. product. Mm. So that creates job and it creates long-term mm. sustainable economic mm. activity. And then on balance, if you look at um, the African experience, yeah. it's only Rwanda really that has had some success mm. with um, with foreign aid, mm. and they've had that success because I mean they have the kind of leadership, the kind of governance and leadership yeah. that really doesn't exist anywhere else in the African continent. Mm. You know, so to have that level of, of 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 discipline, that level of efficiency, that level of proper governance mm. is something that is, that has been difficult for mm. Africa, and. Um, on balance, African countries that have not taken foreign aid have done better than the ones that, have, the ones that have, yeah. with the exception of Rwanda. Mm. And good examples here are, are, are South Africa. I know things have gone down most recently, but South Africa and, and Botswana, who are mm. among the few countries in the continent with um, middle-income mm. status. Mm. You know, whether you agree with um, proposition or opposition in today's debate, I think... Um, you know, Talifang's framing and, and conclusion is very important um, because it centers what, I mean, the understanding of foreign aid and what it can and cannot do. It can provide a band-aid solution and, and humanitarian aid in particular has been quite helpful in providing food and providing schooling and medical help for the poorest of the poor, but it cannot deliver long-term economic growth that would ensure Africa stands on its own two feet. That requires genuine development of the market. So yes, you know, we should fund girls to finish their education, but we should also be aware that 
those same girls we have sponsored might not be able to find jobs in that very same economy if we don't address the structural conditions that have led to the existence and necessity of aid in Africa. So this Mandela Day, I think we have a very interesting challenge to think about whether our time and resources are going into rewriting the way things have always been done or simply applying a band-aid. That was episode six of The Interchange. See you next time.